The following episode of the 9pm edict is different. Monday, the 26th of March, 28... Nah, that's not the right feel. Hello, I'm still Gerian. Uh, and this is something new. It really needs a new intro, but uh, I don't have time right now, so it's uh, just me talking for a bit, okay? This is the pilot of a new type of edict episode, a long-form interview with an interesting person, and I'm going to call these episodes The 9pm Probe, uh, because of course I am. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to have an intro that says something like, the probe explores, the probe goes deep, the probe can be uncomfortable sometimes, but the probe might well discover something up there that we haven't seen before and today we're inserting the probe into dot 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 you know thing so i'll I'll work that out next time but for now uh the probe goes into space archaeologist dr alice gorman uh, aka dr space junk from flinders university in south australia as uh, some of you may know i was a bit of an enthusiastic space age kid so this first episode this pilot episode is is very self-indulgent really uh we talk about the bitter history of australia's early involvement in space basically the poms sold us down the river as they always have and abandoned us again so we can do grabs like the intro thing later uh we also talk about elon musk launching a tesla sports car into space so I think this, again, this is a radical disruption of the kinds of images we've got used to. And I think, I don't know where this is going to lead, but I think this is really interesting. And Australia's potential future in space. For people to really support Australian space, they need to get past this thing that it's something other people do, not us. And a lot of other things besides. We, we jump from topic to topic pretty fast, so there's a detailed list with links on the website at stillgarian.com. This interview was recorded on Monday, the 26th of March, 2018. Enjoy. Good morning, Stillgarian. Okay, space archaeology. What is it? Space is a new thing. How can we have archaeology? I know, it seems paradoxical, doesn't it? Mm. But archaeology is a set of methods and techniques used for analysing how humans interact with the material world. So really, there's, there's no time limit on this. We can do it as far back in the past as humans exist. We can do it as far into the future as humans exist. So it's really all about the material stuff. So this is what I do. I take all of those standard archaeological techniques and theories and questions and I apply them to space exploration, which is essentially rockets, satellites, tracking stations, antennas, space stations, planetary landing sites uh, from the 1950s onwards. Okay, Uh, that covers a lot of artefacts, obviously not a lot of terracotta or other pottery things. Well, there are a lot of ceramics in space. Ceramics is actually a big space material, but of course they don't look like the pots that we're used to at all. Mm. Mm. So what's some of the stuff you're working on at the moment? I've got kind of two, well, three major sort of research areas, I guess. So one of them is space junk. We've just got this word junk. We apply it to all of this stuff in orbit that doesn't work. And this is precisely what archaeologists are interested in, the stuff that's been abandoned, thrown away, um, that's, that's no longer functional, no longer sort of interacting with humans. So that's the stuff we generally look at to try and work out what were the ideologies and technologies and all that kind of stuff. So in the space junk arena, this is quite interesting because some of this junk um, includes whole satellites that have incredible histories, and this is something you know a lot about as well. Yeah, a bit of a space boy back there. I'm a few years older than you when I had the sort of pleasure of having a half day off school to watch the first moonwalk. Ah, amazing. Which was, to be honest, a bit boring to look at. Like, there was all this lead-up in the newspapers. I mean, you would have seen the news stories and how for the whole week leading up. Front page of the paper, um, there is a diagram, you know, showing what's going to happen at each each stage of the mission. Uh, And then on the day, yeah. A bit anticlimactic, you think? Well, it was a bit blurry and I don't Mm. know. I mean, I I was, you know... Well, thank you, Parks. We can thank Parks for those blurry images, can't we? Yes, yes. I think that's funny because kids these days, kids these days, see, of course, the high-resolution imagery that was taken on the moon and brought back. What they don't see is 
how it appeared mm. on television after bouncing all over the well, between bodies and around planet this planet uh and yeah it was a bit it was a bit blurry it was a bit <laughs> not much color going on yeah no. very that's an interesting point this this momentous piece of television that mm. that yeah to the modern eye looks um Maybe not as exciting as we felt it at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but then, you know, they had to make it look like that to conceal that it was all faked. Oh, of course, yes, yeah. yes. But anyway, back, back to, to space back to jump. The, back to the space jump. So, and, the, and the satellites. So, so an I'm, example. I'm kind of, well, an, a very obvious example for, for this year is Vanguard 1. It's a satellite I talk about quite a bit, but just um, 10 days or so ago, it turned 60. It was launched on March the 17th, 1958. It is the oldest human object in orbit. Ah, now, this is the first American satellite. A second, second American, American satellite, satellite, but the only one still surviving. Right. And it's it's beautiful. Like it's it's they don't make satellites like this anymore. It's a it's a polished <laughs> aluminium. This is, this is almost like people sphere. talk about you know an old sports car or a, well, this is it is this is kind of it's sort they of they don't make them technology. like this anymore. Yeah, um, it had so everybody would know Sputnik One, the first satellite. It burnt up after I think it was in orbit for a few months. So it, it's a polished aluminium sphere with four antennas all pointing in the same direction, a bit like a kohlrabi vegetable, also known as the Sputnik vegetable. Um, Vanguard 1 was another polished aluminium sphere, tiny. Um, it had... You're holding up your hands about the size of a basketball there, perhaps even Well, it's smaller, because Khrushchev called it the grapefruit satellite because he said it was the size of a grapefruit, and this was meant to be very disparaging. <laughs> this was not a compliment. It had the first solar cells of any satellite. Oh. Its antenna were not all facing the same direction like Sputnik 1, they were sort of at right angles. They were six an- antennas. And it's argued that not just the satellite itself, but the, the tracking network and all of the, the launch, the whole system, the whole space system that got Vanguard run into orbit is the progenitor of all American space exploration today. So this is quite a historic little satellite. But it was also... The things that I find fascinating about it is it was... Even though it's a military satellite, it was being produced by the Naval Research Laboratory, it was meant to present the US as a peaceful player in space. So they had an image problem. They had to... It was totally military, but they wanted it to send this message. The US is not going to space to wage war. It's going there to wage peace. Says the US Navy. Says the US (laughs) Navy. And something that um, contributed to sending that message was uh, independently there was an astronomer at the Smithsonian who set up a volunteer network across the world of people to watch for satellites and they were meant to watch for Vanguard 1 because they expected it to be the first satellite. So it has this huge network of citizen scientists attached with it. So, So that is something that fascinates me. I love the fact that right from the beginning of the space age you have just ordinary people getting involved with it. It's a whole strand of space history, I think, that we often overlook or forget about. And from my perspective as an archaeologist, what archaeologists do when they work in the historic period is highlight those forgotten stories. History is written by the victors. It's a cliche, but it's also largely true. So what stories are not being told? And for me as an archaeologist, I'm interested in looking at those physical objects and saying, well, where are the other stories? Where are the stories that don't get highlighted in those grand space narratives. And this is one of them, this whole um, involvement and contribution of of volunteer labour and volunteer expertise. So that's something that makes that satellite really important, I think. Okay, so I I now have about 30 questions in my head, obviously already out of all of that. I, I will throw in a comment when you said, you know, peaceful use of space. I remember Strategic Air Command, which was, of course, America's nuclear strike force, having having the, the motto, peace is our profession. Isn't that bizarre? Yes, <laughs> they saw themselves as maintaining the peace. And that was the deterrent strategy, and you could argue that it worked. I suppose you could. We're still here. We're still we, here. We haven't been obliterated by a nuclear holocaust, yeah, so give, to give an a extent. Yeah, that's bad to happen right. soon. Um, mm. The military and civilian mix I find interesting because a lot of the military aspects are now slowly being declassified. They've, they've reached that certain age. Uh, people, for example, may not know about some of the space stations that didn't happen, and I'm thinking of MOL, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, mm. which 
by its name, it sounds like it's a scientific space station. And I should say this was never actually orbited, but it was in fact a military surveillance design. Uh, and for people who uh, are interested in this, the, Na- the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO in the United States, is slowly declassifying all of this stuff. And about six months ago, put a whole lot of stuff about MOL online. Uh, oh, oh your, your eyes are perking up. Yeah, they are perking that. up. Well, let's go, military let's in space. To- yeah, the military stuff of the 60s. Yeah, this, well, these days they call it dual use, and we know that many satellites are launched with a, an overt mission and a covert mission. Mm. And this is something that really emerged in the early days of the space age. So, so a lot of the early space programs were purely military, and the problem with Vanguard was sort of how do you sell it to the public when mm. it's basically all about weapons development and military surveillance and all that kind of thing. So it's a re- it is a really interesting tension, I think, and the way it's played out, so this still happens, you know, this, this dual use thing is, mm. is just ongoing. Um, but I think we're entering a different kind of era Well, where you might say, so the commercial spacecraft, so there's always been that civilian military tension. Mm. Mm. But how's that working out with the commercial ones now? So, they, you know, they don't, they're not relying. Well, some of them are relying on defence funding. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's true. But what happens when, when commercial spacecraft or commercial operations are also doing that purely for military purposes? Which they are. Which they are. And that makes them, so they're not... Commercial operations are not accountable to the public in any way. The military don't have to... Uh, I mean, we could be looking at a sort of huge shadow space industry that the general public knows nothing of. I guess what I'm getting at is I'm thinking this sector could become much, much bigger and it'll be it'll be a dark space and we'll only be seeing it, which is already the case. We see the tip of the iceberg as it this is. is. Always, this has always been the thing, though. I mean, uh, I think that if you move outside the, the circle of space geeks and military geeks, then people would be surprised to know both the number of surveillance satellites mm. uh, and uh, the... The the dates on which it all started. I mean, going mm. way way back to Corona. There's another lovely word to look up. I didn't realise until a few years ago that one of my favourite films, Ice Station Zebra, yes, which used to be a bit of a Christmas favourite. It used often to be on on a Christmas afternoon when everybody was lying about the house filled with pudding and port and all of those things. And the film starts off. It's you know very. Um, Cold War um, mm. saga, but it starts off with a satellite, uh, a surveillance satellite dropping its little load of film and the Russians and the Americans trying to get it first. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it's a corona. I'm almost certain it's a corona satellite, although at that stage... We did not know that... Well, we might have known the name. Yeah, that's that's the other thing, like how much of it was known at the time. Uh, because a few years ago, mm. um, under President Obama... The Ameri- he, he declassified a whole lot of imagery from these early satellites, uh, these earlier surveillance satellites. Uh, and I know that uh, archaeologists of Central Asia and there is suddenly go, wow, we now have high-resolution photography of all of these parts of the world we didn't have before and have discovered, what, a few cities have been discovered, ancient cities have been I think so. Yeah, this is, this in- is becoming a big um, archaeological technique using remote sensing data from satellites yeah. to, to map sometimes find or re-find and map um, the extent of sites and and all of that stuff, which yeah. is inter- it's an interesting thing there too. So we find these things, but um, looters and antiquities dealers also oh, have access to that information. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, And they probably really. have more money at their disposal than, Sadly, than they archaeologists. Do. Yes, yes, they do. Um, mm. But Ice Station Zebra, yes, um, it is an excellent Cold War film. It shows the tensions of... of, of this secret stuff involving submarines under the Arctic ice and, and all of this. I was disappointed. I first saw it when some local community group put it on and I was way too young to understand it. And I thought, I thought as a mm-hmm. kid that Ice Station Zebra 
might be so an ice station is a bit like where you go to buy ice for a party <laughs> and and get your drinks up so i thought an ice station was it was something like you know a car wash or whatever so i thought ice station zebra was some sort of amusing film about a zebra at an ice station and maybe there was going to be i don't know ice cream or ice something, cream or something yes well, very far from that. Actually, but there's no zebra at all. <laughs> not one zebra. But I've, I found it interesting too because when I started um, researching space stuff, I discovered that there had been... So the, the first satellites were launched in conjunction with a major international scientific effort called the International Geophysical Year. I was wondering these, who would mention that. These, <laughs> these international scientific years like happen all the time. Like the year I was born, 19... Ooh, Do you want to, maybe we're not that. I'm not going to say that, actually. No, no, no. I, 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 looked you up on, I looked you up on the internet. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm a handful of years older than you. People um, can work that out. <laughs> um, that was the International <laughs> Year of the Quiet Sun. And there were also International Polar Years. And the first International Polar Year was, I think, in 1888. And I often wondered if... You remember how Frankenstein's monster runs away to the North Pole in oh, the yes. end. So I often wondered, and they talk about to live with the people moon there, and clearly, um, <laughs> I often wondered if there was an international polar year connection with that. And I also wondered about Ice Station Zebra, how that connected in with polar, um, international polar years and uh, research stations and things like that. But I think that's Because the again, the, the, the polar research stations were, dual, I'm sure they were dual purpose. I mean, Yeah, they yeah. must have been. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is, I think something that um, is interesting about the sort of way we're talking about this stuff now is we're looking at earth and sea and those kinds of um, symmetries or asymmetries between earth and sea and ice and water and earth. This is, so this is a system. It's going something hippie that, on me now. No, don't, don't, no, I'm not going hippie on you. I'm just thinking about the fact that, People tend to think that space is out there, far away, invisible, nothing to do with us. But in fact, space is close to us Mm -hmm. and we're hooked into space Mm -hmm. all the time. And space and Earth are part of ecological, it's not ecological, part of a weather system. Like, it's part of the same system. Maybe it is ecological if you go for the panspermia theory of the development of life. Let's leave that one for the the kids to look up for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> there are just too many threads to cover. Now, before we get on to some of the specific things I wanted to, to mention, we were talking the other day about how people get angry with you for being a space archaeologist. This is such a weird thing. So uh, this has happened to me a few times now, and it's quite common for people to say, mm, space arch- what does that mean? Mm. And that's easy enough to explain. It's mm. perfectly logical. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, this has happened, I think, um, mostly on Twitter, where you and I interact from time to time. And I don't know, I'll post something fairly innocuous, like mm-hmm. um, something to do with the Apollo 11 landing site as right. an archaeological site. Right. And somebody will Which pop up. Which seems quite like, reasonable, given I, that it's I such an historic so. place. And then someone pop up and say, say, basically, they'll say, you're a fraud. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'll say... Oh, um, okay. So Are they always you... men? No, not always. Okay. There, has been, there was one woman, and she said that's not. The woman said that's not archaeology, and I was like, um, yes, it is, because here's the definition of archaeology. Mm. And she said, well, I had a friend who knew an archaeologist, and that's not what they did. I said, <laughs> but I, I'm an archaeologist. I don't get it anyway. So she was, she was annoyed. So annoyed that. This wasn't what she thought archaeology was. So um, again, you're not digging around in a pit in around. Egypt or... Um, uh, another one got really upset because he said he thought I was doing satellite tracking and he knew people and, you know, I was making it up. I couldn't possibly have that data. I was a fraud. So, no, I'm not tracking satellites. The people who do that do that. I use their data. I'm interested in the archaeology, the material stuff. And he couldn't let that go. He went on a huge rant and rave. But, and another one. But also, recently, the people doing that are quite open. I'm thinking of um, Dr. Marco Lambrook in. Oh in, yes, Marco. He's a uh, the he's an archaeologist as well, but an archaeologist he, and satellite tracker. And satellite tracker. And yeah. so he's one of that group of people who, within 
you know, a couple of hours of a satellite being launched is tracking is. it and figuring out what it's probably doing for its covert mission. And so, like, this is not controversial stuff. No, and all the data is being shared by these people. If so you wanted a copy, you could just, just download it. it. So, <laughs> and another one got really angry with me because he, he clearly thought, I've eventually worked out, he thought archaeology had to be old mm. and it was not legitimate to do archaeology on recent stuff. And thinking about the way that argument evolved, I think what he was upset about, and I think what maybe the other ones were upset about, is that by calling it archaeology, I'm sort of taking away the hope that this is something... I'm, I'm kind of saying it's already dead. So they think of archaeology as the old stuff. So, so when, and, and for me, like there are some arguments that... You can't do archaeology on functioning space systems, and that, I don't have any issue. I just, if it's a material thing, then humans are involved in, then that's my archaeology. Whether they're still using it or using not. Using it or not. But um, there is an argument that you do archaeology on stuff that's fallen out of its systemic context, no longer being used. So for these people, I think, by calling it archaeology, I'm putting it in the past and not in the future. So I'm kind of depriving them of the hope that they will go into space or that, you know, truly space will become for everyone. And maybe that's not how they would articulate it. Maybe they don't quite understand why they're angry at me. But I think that might be what's at the bottom of it. And Mm. it never occurred to me that this was something that might upset people. So I find it quite surprising and interesting. And maybe it means I have to... I don't know. Sometimes maybe I have to think about how I sort of present the field so that people find it less confusing and less confronting. But hey, look, if archaeology arouses strong emotions in people, I think that's probably a good thing. Okay, well, let's look back at some of Australia's early space history. Um, You have seen, and I will link to on the, uh, the, the podcast webpage, an article I wrote, 10, 11 years ago now, and um, in it, I, I, it's headline, it's from Crikey, The Space Age Australia Never Had, hmm. uh, because we did have the Woomera rocket range built as part, all right, again, a weapons thing, that was a thing for testing the new British uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, and then the crew, well, not, yeah, standoff missile, cruise missile, we'd call them today, hmm. uh, and things like that. Uh and then that never kind of happened because of politics of the British Defence Department, the Ministry of Defence. Basically, uh, the Poms sold us down the river as they always have and abandoned us again. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and that's a. You can edit that out if you want to. No, no, no. It's it's basically true, and we. I know that you and I can both go on about what happened with that, but. Actually, no, I th- we should come back to that because it was, and I think still is, the largest on-land, fully instrumented test range yes. from Woomera all the way across the Great Victoria Desert out to near Broome somewhere. Mm. And the idea was, well, you know, you need to test these missiles over their full range of, of 3,000, 4,000 kilometres or whatever it is. And they on that straight line out through the desert, put instrumentation stations. Cost, uh, where's the number? Australia spent £9 million back in the day. I don't know what that is now, building it. And then, of course, the Brits, as you say, Mm. said, oh, look, thanks for that, but we won't be needing that after all. Look, jolly good effort. Yes, we'll just piss off now. Yeah. And you can take your space age and... Shove it up your... Yeah. Up your launch vehicle. (laughs) No, that's that's wrong, yeah. Uh, But Australia has put that to use. Um, what's still out there? What what was out there and what's still out there? Well, interestingly, Woomera is incredibly busy military test range still. Mm, like, mm. it's not necessarily, um, you know, rockets launched into space. But it's, it, it is incredibly busy. It's used very heavily. There are still large parts of it that you need clearance mm. to get into. Mm. So that stuff, the military stuff's all going on very well. Its use for civilian launches um, is getting less and less. So there used to be the Australian Space Research Institute was a amateur rocket society that managed to get a whole lot of leftover Zuni rockets 
and had an amateur launch program that involved a lot of people. Now, the Zuni rocket, from memory, was used f- to explore the upper atmosphere. Scientific. Yes, yeah, Explore the ionosphere. Uh, did they even discover the Van Allen belts with them, or was that something I think that was something else. else yeah. I think that might have been a Viking or a... Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, so... We'll look that up. But the, this the Zuni was, another... was what, what they call in the trade a sounding rocket, wasn't yes, it? To just fire exactly. straight up and make measurements. Get data and, yeah, come back down. Um, and this is another strand in that whole sort of amateur citizen space thing. But it's getting... Um, well, their Zuni rockets became a bit um, out of date and unstable and mm. fuel problems and stuff. But it's very difficult now to do anything non-military out there because of the military stuff. So there's a mixture between very active parts of the range and the abandoned parts of the range, which include the now completely demolished... There's concrete and bits of stuff where Resat 1 was launched. I think that was um, Launcher 8. Uh, okay, I have that. It was what, the 29th of November 1967 was Resat, according to this little that is checklist. Good, because I did double-check them all. <laughs> and that, that was, yeah, a leftover... Um, Redstone rocket. Redstone rocket, that's right. Yeah. The, the Americans had brought some over and they brought a spare... They, in case they blew one up and they didn't blow it up, and here you go, and Australia, you can have that. And we put a one year, which is pretty extraordinary. They designed and built a satellite, put it on top, launched it successfully, our first satellite. So, And it completed 643 orbits. That's pretty good, huh? Which is, yeah, that's pretty good for the period. And we got a good lot of data from it. Yeah. So that launch range hasn't been the the archaeological site of that launch range is still out there. Later on, when we were cooperating with Europe in the ELDO program, uh, there's two big launch sites from that that are still abandoned. Unfortunately, the army used them as target practice. So they're in poor condition, but they're still... <laughs> That's a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? Yes. It's just... um, if you get it, it's po- it is possible. You can arrange to go out to those sites if you're in Woomera. And the thing I love about the Eldo launch sites is they're right on the edge of a huge salt lake. You've been out there, haven't you? I'm only to the town of Woomera. I haven't oh, been right. out to the range. You need to go. It is amazing. Yeah. So Lake I Hart- mean, the town itself, it's like being on Mars. It's just red rocks and dust in every direction. Yeah, but it's amazing. The bar of the Eldo Hotel sitting uh-huh. out on their balcony uh-huh. as the sun falls over the red desert with your mm. beer, that's a pretty special experience. Uh, I could be there right now. You could be there right now. I love it out there. I really do. Beautiful. The desert is truly beautiful. It is fantastic. Um, so at these two launch sites, they so the actual pad is sort of at the top of the cliffs at the edge of the lake, Salt Lake, and then the exhaust goes down this high tiles, maybe a little bit, if you think of space shuttle tiles that are meant mm-hmm. to um, be highly heat resistant and heat, um, heat um, resistant. Yes, I was going to yes. say absorbent, but I don't mean that. I mean no. the opposite. Yes. Um, so this was also a special tile developed to be heat resistant and they lined this sort of exhaust chute. So the rocket, the exhaust goat went down of the Salt Lake. But what I love side about... Of the cliff. This is, that's side of the cliff. And that's very Thunderbirds. Ab- it is a bit Thunderbirds. There's Aboriginal rock art sites also sort of scattered around there. But the little kids... So Woomera in the, through the 60s and 70s was full of kids. It was had the highest birth rate in Australia for a while. And because there's not a lot else to do mm-hmm. out there in the desert. Mm-hmm. And women didn't have as many jobs as yeah. well. You know, they were sort of the little housewife. Lots of women were working on the range, but a lot of them just had to be the housewife. Mm-hmm. The kids figured out this would be the best slide in the world. The best slide. It's like, I don't know, it's like... That must be enormous. It's pretty enormous. And it, it does have a curve, beautiful curve. Anyway, so they would sneak out and go and slide down this huge, huge, huge slide. Um, And then this was discovered, and they were banned from doing it. And there was a little um, article in the advertiser or something saying this is before... um, Obviously, there were a few risks if there was a launch coming up. The last thing they needed was little kids just sort of, you know, herring around, maybe being caught in inadvertently caught in an actual launch so that so they were completely banned but i just love that there image i love much the left of a kid after, after that, that nothing that so vaporized 
let's make it absolutely clear that no children ever died. Yeah. But their subversion yeah. of that site, like that subversive use, and in fact, this brings me to something else I think you're interested in talking about, the use, the, the idea of the rocket playground. So this is a real mm-hmm. rocket playground. Kids are playing on this launch site. And recently I was involved in a heritage project at old radio astronomy antennas. antennas. And sim- some of these were destroyed because the kids were playing on them. Right. The kids were climbing all over the structures, having the best time, but it was seen as a, a health, a safety risk oh, for course, the kids. Of because kids aren't allowed to have fun. They might fall and break their arms. Yes, and which is the most frequent playground injury, mm-hmm. as well as heads getting stuck between bars. So, right. so we have this. Um, so recently, some of my recent research has been around rocket parks in Australia, and everybody, like, if you think of a kids' playground, like everybody loves swings and slides and all of that stuff. But the thing that people remember and feel nostalgic about, and feel passionate about, and want to take their kids to, is the rocket, the rocket in the rocket playground made out of steel tube or wood sometimes but mostly steel steel tubes and yeah mostly yeah. steel and in in australia the genesis of the rocket park was when um this is not so very far from you now i think about it so um there was an engineer in the blue mountains mm-hmm. in blackheath he went on a trip to the u.s he saw rocket parks which were sort of proliferating then he i think he thought, oh, this is all right. So he got out his little pad and did an engineering drawing, mm-hmm. brought it back, going to dinner at the Blackheath Rotary Club, sitting next to his mate, Fred West, who is a metal fabricator. They get chatting and Fred's a bit bored with um, the stuff he's making and he's like, wow, I'm going to make a rocket. So he makes a rocket for the Blackheath Rotary Memorial Park, 30-foot-high rocket modelled on the US Rockets and Rocket Parks. And then everyone wants them. Mm-hmm. So they spread across Australia. And I think they got some rockets from... Some people ordered them directly from US Playground catalogues. <laughs> of course you can mail order these things. Apparently, yes. I mean, they're enormous as well. Um, and people just love them. People love these rocket parks. Mm. And now they're kind of coming back. So Blackheath got rid of... In the 70s, they brought in um, new safety regulations and a lot of the rockets got dismantled or sold as scrap or whatever. And uh, the Blackheath one was Chatswood, I think, bought the Blackheath one. Um, a lot of them were sealed off so kids couldn't climb high mm. or couldn't use the slide or whatever. But just uh, recently, Blackheath decided they wanted a rocket back in their park. So I think they might have commissioned a new one that was installed. So there's this interesting it is a thing. Go and pay it a visit. I think you time. have to. Yes. Um, so, we, yeah, we have this interesting thing where the, here's a little aspect of the space age that Australians are taking up in a really interesting way. And at the same time, we have these actual space sites where children are playing on the structures. So I don't know. I haven't really fully sort of explored the implications of that. But there's, there's a little nexus of stuff going on about play and war and childhood and... Mm. Height and because the thing about the rocket, they're static. They're a rocket that's meant to zoom and go to the moon, but in the playground, they're static. They're still, they're like always on the verge, always about to take off. And there's something about the way kids relate to that. Anyway, you see, you see where I'm kind of going with well, this. Well, and and the period, and, and I'm now thinking of all of the some of the harder science fiction of the period. Ray Bradbury, his whole series of short stories, and there's one. <gasps> That ah, oh, this is the one I can never remember its name. It's a lovely little short story about uh, a boy whose whose father is a rocket pilot, and <gasps> you know the one. I know and the one. I know one, the one. And there's a quote he, in that he, is yeah, just he so never beautiful. sees he never sees his father. He's only back when he's between space missions, but. He goes to the wardrobe when his father's not I there. I want to find that quote. And he it is sniffs, beautiful. Yes. And he just um, sniffs his father's uniform jacket and he thinks he can smell space. I'm going to find that quote because it. it's... Although if it is space these days, my understand it smells like stale farts and... No, it doesn't. It smells like gunpowder or something. Stale farts. Oh, that's the moon smells of gunpowder, isn't it? I think space station... I think the space station maybe... must smell of stale farts and... Well, apparently the space station is pretty smelly. Yeah. It's true. Um, <laughs> I'm going to find this quote. I know it's a beautiful quote. 
I think the story is called Rocket Man. But I, I think just called Rocket I think, Man. Um, yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head though, because he talks about rockets. When he talks about rockets, it's like uh, uh, they're romantic stories. Yeah, they are. The romance of space, and that's. <laughs> I'm going to find it. Yes. Here we go. I think I found the text. But this is another thing I find fascinating. I think we need to. Well, Australians, we're very familiar with, like, American space popular culture. Yes. But we don't know enough about our own space popular culture. Let alone looking at the Soviet space culture, which... Yeah, it's completely different again. If you want to see some of that, kids, follow the Twitter account Soviet Visuals. I don't follow that account. I need to... Oh, here it is. Shall, shall we read this quote? Yes, please. So this is, as, as you outlined, it's a little boy who, whose father comes home mm. on a quick break before he heads up to the stars. And he goes to... So his father's just come home and he goes into his room and there's his suitcase of his gear packed for space. Quoting from Ray Bradbury. And from the open case spilled his black uniform... Like a black nebula, stars glittering here or there distantly in the material. I kneaded the dark stuff in my warm hands. I smelled the planet Mars, an iron smell, and the planet Venus, a green ivy smell, and the planet Mercury, a scent of sulphur and fire, and I could smell the milky moon and the hardness of the stars. The hardness of the stars. That is, yeah, that's that is that is poetry. poetry. Yes, right that is there. that is that is beautiful. So much. I also, it's interesting historically to hear Venus still being the the cloudy jungle planet. Because I think it was up until, until 1962 when Mariner flew by. Because there was still that possibility, wasn't it? Yeah. that those clouds could hide a like tropical jungle or kind anything. of environment. What did they hide? And yeah. what they did hide was acid rain in one of the most mm. bleak places mm. in the solar system. It's still my favourite planet, I'm just yeah. saying. It doesn't... Yeah. I think because people overlook it, I think because... I don't know. Maybe I dislike the associations with Venus. Maybe I like okay. the sort of contrast between... The idea of Venus as or Aphrodite as the sort of god of love and this very um, harsh, harsh to humans. Venus is a harsh mistress. Oh, I suppose uh, I could go a whole lot of metaphors down that yeah, path. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to think about this more. Anyway, okay. I don't. I, planet. Do I have a favourite? I'm not sure. I think I always liked the idea. Of Neptune in the 1960s was very mm. distant and unknown and blue, bluey green. Isn't so it? that appealed to you? That kind of colour associate because I think it even does look bluey green through a um, telescope doesn't yeah, that, it that's what I mean. that, that yeah. is the colour it is um, Uranus is a bit I think whiter I've got to tell you a funny story is this a Uranus joke yeah Go. well it's not really a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so I was um, I was at the World Science Festival in Brisbane last week and the uh, Sir Thomas Brisbane Planetarium people very kindly invited me to come and do a show with them cool which was wonderful um, and we were doing a little tour of the solar system with Mark Rigby, who's um, the director there. And we did Earth, we did orbit, we did the moon, we had a look at Venus. Mm-hmm. And then um, he said, now, where should we go next? What planet would you like next, Alice? And I said, foolishly, let's throw it open to the audience, <laughs> which contained a fair number of children. I think they were scouts or cubs or something. Mm-hmm. So what planet would you like to go to next? Back comes the chorus. Uranus. <laughs> I, I said to, I said to Peter, who was operating the projector, that was a mistake, wasn't it? And he mm-hmm. said yes, mm-hmm. and that it happens every time. Every time. So I walked straight into that. Yeah, mm. but you that I politely you, said Uranus. You did very politely say that. Yes, yes. that's very clever of you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which is better historically, but. I think we just need to own it. I think we just yeah. need to forget this. Own Uranus. Own Uranus. <laughs> Moving on, um, are we now in something which we should perhaps label the second space age? Because we had a gap, you know, no one human in more than a few kilometres from Earth since 1972. Two. Yeah. Apollo 17, you're yes. thinking. I think it's 72. Oh, four decades ago, nearly, you know, coming up to probably five soon. And there's a big gap. We thought that space was over. I mean, then the shuttle 
got shut down, mm. and that was not really what it was planned to be. See, I've got a lovely book of uh, somewhere in storage from the period, which is I think it's it's from about. 1969, 1970, and it's talking about how there's going to be a shuttle flight at least once a week, mm. and it's just going to be the big space truck. How far we are from that now. Yeah. I was mm. in a kind of circle of people who had a little newsletter going around, uh, and one of the guys on that was actually a NASA engineer working on the shuttle program, and after they had cuts to here and cuts to there, he actually said, I wouldn't fly in that thing. Really? Yeah. That's pretty scary. Yeah. Um, and now it doesn't even exist? No. And the US is reliant on Russia? I saw that, yeah, and we're li- relying not only on Russian technology, it's half-century-old mm. Russian designs. I, mm. I can see one there behind you drawing off. This is true. That, that, yes. that beautiful, and, and I, I always thought as a kid, I thought that the Soviet launch vehicles looked far cooler than the American ones. They do because they had that particular arrangement of boosters mm. and because the Soviet aesthetic, technological aesthetic, was so different as well. Yes. And I think that's, you know, I, once um, I was in Sydney's Powerhouse Museum uh, with Kerry Doherty, who used to be the curator of the space collections there, and they had some wonderful um, material, including quite a few USSR models of USSR mm. satellites, which is not. Normally you go to a space museum and they tend to be dominated by US material, so we're mm. used to the look of that. And if you see a lot of Soviet stuff in the same place, like it really strikes you just how different it looks. So the powerhouse hopefully still has all of those satellites on display. But I walked from that gallery straight over to the ABC building, which is next door, and there was a Dalek in the foyer, a, a model, a full-size Dalek model, because mm. I think it was some Doctor Who anniversary or something. And I was absolutely struck in the face by the similarity of the Dalek to the Soviet satellite aesthetic because they didn't shield things. They were doing it on much lower budget than the US. So if something, some component didn't need to be shielded from the space environment, they didn't shield it. So you could see a lot more of the internal detail. And I'm like, oh, there's Dalek. The Dalek is Sputnik 2 to a T. So I find that really And it's sort of period, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. So I, I suspect and, there and is some influence. And how else, if you want to make something look alien and dangerous, you choose, you model a, you choose the a, global enemy. Yeah, I really think there's something there. Mm, I, I, I don't think any deliberate propaganda motive, just looking at things and going, wow, well, that looks different and mm. and and foreign, alien, alien in the broad sense of Yes, I'm sure you're right. It's word. just like a subconscious thing, but that's what was in the zeitgeist then, wasn't it? So Ah, zeitgeist, it's such a wonderful word. So back to this, are we in a second space age? But a commercial one, not a... Look, I think we are, and for me, um, just maybe thinking over maybe the past five years. Mm. So I was sort of writing stuff about, about space five years ago and drawing on some researchers in the area of, of space power and stuff, and they're predicting there's going to be a change in emphasis, so it will include greater commercial involvement, all of that stuff. But what I feel from that sort of five years ago talking about it going to happen, at the moment I think it is happening. Like things have really changed quickly. Mm. So I think we are. And what's going to characterise this is, of course, there's the whole commercial thing, which has become far more dominant far more quickly than I think people might have expected. And, of course, it's often due to these extremely wealthy individuals who are investing in space mm. and this i think relates to elon musk's ending foundation the um disc of asimov's foundation novels into space on his red i think there's something about he also the, i mean he grew up reading this stuff he was a classic I space kid in he south thinks africa he's the from mule. i think uh, that's what i think but this is pure speculation so we also so we have this we have the whole cubesat Revolution. So small satellites are making space accessible to a much broader range of players. Which you this can either use smaller launch vehicles like our friends in New Zealand are playing with, or you can just stack a ton of them into something bigger. And the thing that's really interesting with this, I think, 
is we saw just a couple of weeks ago the launch of a series of small, I think three or four small satellites that were not authorised for launch. They were rogue satellites. Oh, I missed that. Yes, so it was a US launch. I forget who had made them. Um, So they were not, they had not been cleared for launch. And they did it anyway. the FAA. Yeah. In the US, the yeah. Federal Aviation Authority. So we've had rogue rocket launches before. That's not uncommon. Ro- uh, rocket launches are supposed to be... I probably did that as a kid. Oh, that kind not of that rocket. Old. But, you know, that's, that's one thing. But what we see here potentially is commercial satellite operators just saying, well, you can't regulate us. What are you going to do? We've launched mm. them already. What are you going to do? So this is Send the X-37B the- to shoot it down. Yeah, which is not going to... See, they've got us over a barrel because literally cannot shoot these things down. Uh, so I think this is I think this is really interesting. We've got the whole space tourism thing. So yeah, we're not although, quite, although Richard Branson's thing has gone belly up, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, kind of. And the local community in Arizona that got behind his spaceport there are kind of a bit shitted off with him, is my understanding. Oh, that's interesting to know. Mm. So we've got... But potentially... If we have more people going into space, maybe it's just for a few hours, maybe, you mm-hmm. know, suborbital, very low orbit, that's kind of going to change the balance of things. Mm-hmm. We have a had, bit, I, I mean, think. a number of space tourists now going up on... But they've all been, like, obscenely wealthy Well, yes, people. because they've paid full tote odds for their slot on, mm. a, on a Sawyer's launch. Um, speaking of 50-year-old technology. Yes. <laughs> they just work. They just work. So I um, <laughs> think that's going to be um, a feature of our new space um, world as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, but the critical thing, and this is what I think you're interested in particularly as well, is what's Australia going to be doing? In yes, because world? we've we've had well, we've had a government announcement that means very very little, um, I think, and a small amount of money thrown at it. But well, we the any day now the expert reference group will release its report on what our space ah. agency will look like. The early indications are that it will be reasonably funded, it will be funded to a level that makes it feasible, that it will be a, a separate standalone agency, not just a subsidiary department of um, some larger department. So this is, I can't speak of industry, exactly. defence, science and yeah. whatever probably. I so this is really hopeful. This is really... But I think that how this plays out, I think, what co- comes back to your point about this earlier space history that we've just kind of let go, we've just kind of walked away from. So I think Australians, we're not used to thinking of ourselves as space players. We're not used to thinking Mm. of ourselves as being able to compete with um, other nations or um, in that technology field. So I think we have a sort of a... um, a perception problem, a credibility problem. Mm-hmm. Like people, to, for people to really support Australian space, they need to get past this thing that it's something other people do, not us. Well, it, I, you know, it's. I think part of it is the feeling that you have to have the launch vehicles. You have to be a European space mm-hmm. agency, or China, or Russia, or the United States, or Elon Musk, or uh, the other one, Lou Orion. Bezos, isn't that him? Oh, that's Bezos, yes. Yeah. Again, we're looking at two of the big internet multi-billionaires mm. who are doing space for shits and giggles. Well, and also because Elon Musk, I, I don't know where his head is. He's really quite a fascinating creature, shall we say. <laughs> I could probably get away with it, but here in Australia, we, of course, have our robust defamation. <laughs> in America, it's a bit more free. Uh, but, okay, so there's two things I now want to ask you specifically about uh, the work that SpaceX is doing with their Dragon Heavies. One is, how did you feel when you watched those two boosters come down and land on their tails just a couple of hundred metres apart in near-perfect synchronicity? I mean, it is really difficult not to be so impressed by that yeah. it's ridiculous so when i think of the stuff that he's doing it's it's that move towards reusability and that level of precision that i think is so important i think that stuff is definitely where we need to be going and i really do applaud the effort that's gone into the development and yeah it was spectacular to watch it yeah. really was it sort of did make your heart beat faster yeah having those live high definition feeds from 
the entire process. Mm. Uh, it's a shame the third booster kind of didn't quite make it onto the barge. Yeah, but, but hey, but yeah, it was still... <laughs> I want to see the rest of it blowing up as it hit. But <laughs> we all love a good exploit. And indeed, yes, Elon Musk himself has tweeted a link to uh, a compilation video of all of their most spectacular <laughs> explosions. Um, uh, which I think... Secondly, firing the Tesla into space. Crass or beautiful PR? Crass. Well, yeah, I successful think it, I think it was all, PR. Yeah, see, successful. I thought it was crass because not everyone is a 15-year-old boy who goes cool space. And I got so much pushback for that, and I'm possibly mm. right, because that became such a global image. They go, yeah, but it's... And they said, oh, but but the internet suggested they do that. And I go, yeah, so it's the fairy McFerry face of, of space exploration. Well, there was actually, apparently, I think there was discussion around it, but there... Uh, there was a woman who tweeted that as a suggestion and the, the story is that, that her tweet, particular tweet, was taken up and, yes. and she is the, the person. I mean, and so I she's it, in the comms department at Tesla, is she? I don't know. I think <laughs> so, she was, um, um, I Is think there plausible deniability? <laughs> but no, no, women are allowed to be rape car freaks and that's... Oh, look, it's a, it's a thing and it's a lovely... But I just went, oh, really... Really? Did it have to be that? Yeah. And people, so uh, the the gender politics around that whole image, the optics of that is interesting. Red sports cars are coded male. The red uh-huh. sports car is the masculine midlife crisis, uh-huh. the penis substitute. Yeah. And then you have on the... a rocket, the penis. On a rocket. The shroud around it is very kind of... Um, yes, let <laughs> There's a lot of penisy stuff of going penis-y on stuff. here, and people said to me, um, you know, there's the star star man, the mm-hmm. s- spacesuit inside, sitting inside the vehicle. First of all, it was called Star Man, and that's from you know David Bowie, Bowie reference. It's called Star Man. People said, but you know, inside that, there's no face. It could be male or female, so you yes. could read it female. But the problem is. The world we live in works if something is not explicitly coded female, it's by default male. So that's particularly a bloke. Particularly if it it's says man, particularly if it's a song by a man about oh, a space da, da, man, da, 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 da. about, yeah, and, and it's in a red car. Like, of course it's a man. Of course it's a man. And you could say all that stuff's unimportant and it's just trivial, and at some level it is trivial, but I would have preferred to see some more thought put into And, of course, it may... The idea was that if it had blown up on the launch pad, nothing was lost. There was no scientific experiment. No one had wasted a lot of money. Sure, that's all fine. But something maybe more inclusive, more representative, some other kind of symbolism would have been nice. And this is precisely... This has kind of changed the nature of symbolic gestures in mm. space. It's changed it to to from... The standard stuff, because around the same time, the Humanity Star, well, a few months earlier, the Humanity Star had been launched by Rocket Labs. And this, again, it was the gesture of, you know, someone with a reasonable amount of wealth who has the power. Yeah, so it's that kind of Mm. symbolism. And now we've had this radical change, which is look at me and my sports car driving around in space. And I think this really changes the other optic, which is really interesting, I think is we have all those iconic images of the Earth from outside, from Apollo 8 and uh, International Space Station, um, you know, they're mm. constantly sending us pictures looking down on Earth from the... the from well, the it's, a li- it's a live stream on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, Anytime you want to watch the Earth from space, just so, punch um, it up. Until now, we've had this idea with this, the perspectives of the Earth from the outside have been presented as that united humanity, forget our differences, the earth is beautiful and fragile. Mind you, that was also a message at the height of the Cold War as everyone's trying to say space is not for the military. This is true. There's a lot of, as you point out, there's a lot of politics around this image. But I think that what the Tesla, if you look at some of the images of the the Tesla Roadster with the space-suited mannequin inside that are circulating, the earth is merely a background it's merely the background to the main show, which is the car being driven away from Earth. That some of the images into the that asteroid you see, belt, isn't into it? Into the asteroid belt. So the Starman isn't even looking at the Earth. The Earth is not. So I think this again, this is a radical disruption of the kinds of images we've got used to. And I think 
I don't know where this is going to lead, but I think this is really interesting. I was speculating a different thing when he said, oh, there's going to be a surprise payload. And I said, yeah, I, bet, I hope it's full of kittens. And they just explode <laughs> like lots of suffocating kittens into space. That'll be, that'll show up. That'll... You are an unusual person, Stilgarian. This has been said before. We have been rabbiting on here for quite a while. We should probably wrap soon. But I want to cross way back to something I saw on your bio on the Flinders University website, which said that you have been looking at the Aboriginal use of bottle glass after European settlement. Ah, yes, this is from my um, former main research area, Which which is stone tools particularly in Australia. So um, across the world, this was There's a hell of a jump from, <laughs> from yeah, stone tools of, of our, our many Indigenous cultures to, to space. It is a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite different. Yes. But I still, I mean, I, I still teach this sort of stuff mm. and um, have a big interest in it. Uh, but it's glass. not. It's it, In fact, it's kind of not unrelated because this is about colonial processes so um glass is effectively behaves like stone Mm. it has the same fracture mechanics and same properties uh and it's very sharp and um across the world when glass it didn't glass didn't always arrive with the european colonial forces sometimes it had actually been was being traded and circulated um independently uh so as in North America and Africa and various places, um, Aboriginal people looked at bottles and saw um, a kind of stone with some additional properties that made it quite useful uh, and they started napping it as if it were stone. And this is used as an example of um, a sort of a cultural exchange. So here's this new material and they're not interested in it as something to an inert substance with which to carry liquids. They're interested in in its mechanical and fracture properties. So it's kind of a technological adaptation of a new material uh, to being used in ways which make sense within uh, Aboriginal culture and society. So it's quite interesting. And you often find it it often occurs, obviously, at places where Aboriginal people and Europeans are interacting in different kinds of ways. And, of course, many of those ways were violent, horrible ways. <laughs> yes. But they? sometimes how those relationships played out, like it's, it's different in every instance. So this, when you find flaked glass, and it's tricky to identify because you have to make certain it's simply not broken. So you have to know what you're looking for. But there are some cases where it's unequivocally been deliberately napped into into flakes. So it tells us something about how Aboriginal people were resisting, interacting with, adopting, um, how this encounter with European technology was... um, being incorporated into their society. So, so like, a a very common... um, I suppose if people think back to what they learn about Australian history in school, you've kind of got mm-hmm. the idea that Europeans arrived and then it was all then downhill it was from there. No, no, um, well, what I learned in history in school was basically... World War One just... We, yeah, <laughs> it was Captain Cook, uh, then then they explored the deserts, and, and then, well, then it was Gallipoli. And nothing and not much in, in between. Nothing much in between. Oh, the gold rush. <laughs> So, oh yeah. yes, we can't forget the gold rush. So, so this stuff is just really interesting because it's telling us the story of Aboriginal culture not being immediately extinguished, but being very dynamic, being taking and adapting aspects of this then new neighbours or whatever, and rejecting others. And that picture. Um, so you know, it's not just up moment. This moment happens, and then suddenly. Europeans take over and Aboriginal people are forced into subversion. It's actually about this very dynamic interactions and the survival of Aboriginal culture as well. So that's something that I find very interesting. And I suppose it has become relevant in the stuff I'm doing on space because we're kind of looking at uh, sort of adaptations to new environments and new materials that don't work the way you expect them to as well and because we do have this whole sort of colonial frontier technology idea about space and being aware of the kinds of 
ideologies and politics and everything around these discussions with terrestrial colonialism, I think is a quite a good lens to kind of critique the way that space people talk about colonization in the rest of the solar system. Wow. Now there's a topic that we don't have time to explore today at all, but that's phenomenal. I'm just wondering, yes, what will the Martians make uh, of those six foot high robots driving around their terrain mm. in years to come. And I don't know whether I mean our human Martians <laughs> or, uh, or Martians. the indigenous Martians yeah. who probably look nothing like us. Yes. There might well be other things. Dr. Alice Gorman, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Still, Garion, always a pleasure to speak with you. Dr. Alice Gorman is uh, based at Flinders University in South Australia. And a quick correction to something we said there, those rogue satellites uh, weren't rogue because they didn't have flight clearance from the Federal Aviation Authority in the United States. It was because they didn't have communications clearance from the Federal Communications Commission. And there's actually a third kind of licence you might need to get a spacecraft up uh, in the US, a recent SpaceX launch was not allowed to show pictures taken from its second stage because they would have been images of the Earth and therefore it was an Earth imaging spacecraft and to do that you need a licence from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration which is, yeah, you need a licence to take commercial photographs of the Earth from space. Uh, that's crazy stuff. Well, look, that's the first episode of uh, the 9pm Probe. If you'd like uh, to hear more of these, there will be a Patreon campaign or something similar happening to allow ongoing subscriptions. Uh, but for now, you can head over stillgarian.com slash tip to do a one-off contribution. That's stillgarian.com slash tip. Uh, or, you know, contact me and, and make me a generous offer. Thanks. I'm Stillgarian. See you next time. The 9pm Probe is a Skank Media production. Sorry.